want to share a little bit this morning about hope. I want to make sure we understand there's at least two kinds of hope. A lot of times when we say things like, well, I hope so, it really is more like just a wish. I mean, it's like, yeah, I hope so. I, I kind of like it to see it to turn out that way. I kind of like it to see it happen that way. Then there's a hope that Christians have in Christ that's a different type of hope. It's a hope based on an absolute certainty. So it's like a hope that we have. It's not here yet, but there is no doubt in my mind it's coming. I have the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's, it's coming. I'm going to be there. It's, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's taken care of at the cross. Through the resurrection, it's done. A hope. But boy, oh boy, do we have our hopes disappointed sometimes in the natural, right? Some of you have heard me share parts of this little testimony I'm going to share probably numerous times over the years. Uh, but there's part of it I wanted to share this morning. Uh, I'd been to Russia three, three times, I think, maybe four. And then we got a call. I was, I'd made friends with a man named Mike Karnasak, who's since went home to be with the Lord. And he and his wife started a ministry, and they went to Russia kind of regularly. And I ultimately ended up on being on their board of directors. So we were good friends. And he called me and he said, Mike, I've got an invitation to go into Siberia, a little city called Radushny, Radushny, Russia. They called it a new city because in Russia, obviously under communism, you kind of did what they told you to do. Well, they discovered oil in that north central part of Siberia on the other side of the Ural Mountains. And they just moved people there. So there was about 24,000 people, I believe, there at that time. And uh, there we, we were told there was no Christian element whatsoever. There was a Russian Orthodox church there, but that was it. So I, I, Mike says he had made friends with a college student in Moscow who invited him to bring a team to Radushny. And it turned out, it worked out, because this college kid's mother was the personal secretary of the mayor of this city. So that kind of opened the door for us. So we went to Radushni, and actually before we went, we were starting to pray about this, obviously. It's a good thing to do. And we really felt the Lord was impressing upon us that we were going to, in the midst of this, there were some secret Christians, you know, hidden Christians, maybe even like a home church or a house church, something like that in this city. And we felt the Lord prompting us to, to make sure we were prepared to bless them. So we had gotten a hold of a number of Bible studies, a big box full of Bible studies, topical studies, books of the Bible studies, and they were all in Russian. We'd gotten them all in Russian. And back then it was a little more difficult to get those things. Nowadays it's not so hard. But we got them all, and we were going to try to make sure we had some extra money to bless them. And that was really something we were looking forward to. We really were believing and trusting and hoping in that. Well, we got there, and it was getting there was a, a whole other story. But when we did get there, it was an amazing ministry. The because of the mayor's secretary being the one that invited us, it actually came from the mayor. We were able to show the Jesus film in the city theater. It was amazing. Our interpreter, when we tried to have an altar call, he says, "You can't do that. No one will come forward. Russians don't do that. No one can come forward." And uh, Mike, the other Mike, said, "You just." interpret what I tell you, and we'll see what happens. So we had dispersed ourselves, the team, at all the exits. And we went through the altar call, and he got told them that anybody who wants to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, stand up. 
and go to one of these team members. Every single person in the packed theater went forward to accept Christ. It was awesome. We got to go into the schools. One kindergarten teacher stood out. She was just one of those kindergarten teachers who just loved her job, loved her kids, just glowed. We got to go to hospitals. We brought medication. I mean, they took us into the pharmacy in the hospital, and it was a cabinet. And they opened the cabinet, and it was empty. We brought aspirin, amongst many other things, but they, hadn't even had, they didn't even have aspirin. The kindergarten class, we brought shoes, duffel bags full of brand-new kids' shoes. It was an amazing week. But all through the week, we were praying and watching for God. Who is it? Where are the secret Christians? Who is it we're supposed to give all this stuff to? And the days went by, and we would be exhausted by the end of the day, but that was always one of our prayers is to show us who this is going to be. How are we going to do this? The last day came, and nothing. Then it got even crazier. We went to the airport. Paul and Elaine know these stories by heart. We went to the airport, and our interpreter runs in. This is a college student, and he comes running out. And this is how he phrased it. The plane went boom. And we're like, what? What are you talking about? The plane went boom. And what he was trying to tell us, was, there was no such plane. We had tickets. We had seat assignments. And we were actually flying to a city called Nova Sibiris because one of the members of the team had a, a, a son there. But it turned out there's never been a plane fly from Radujni to Nova Sibirsk. And as far as they knew, there never was going to be one. So we're like, okay, this is not that great. You're in Siberia with tickets that don't have a plane. How are we going to get home was one thought, which, you know, it's amazing. Those things cause you to really pray. So fortunately, we were staying in a flat, uh, an apartment, a very kind of tiny apartment, but it was the flat that belonged to the secretary, the mayor's secretary, because she was living with her boyfriend. So we went back there. So now it's evening, and we're unpacked just enough to go to bed, not knowing when we're going to go home. And it's about 9 o'clock at night. Emotional still. And there's a knock on the door. And we're like, what in the world? Who's here? Open the door, and here's the kindergarten teacher and a married couple who were the pastor and his wife and two teenagers. They were the house church. And they came in, and we were able to give them all this literature uh, we asked them if they had any needs. They, they said, boy, if you could give us some financial help to buy a keyboard, it would be awesome. We had the money to give them for a keyboard. We did communion together, prayed together. God revealed himself through his plans, his way. After our hope was totally deflated, deflated, didn't exist anymore. It's a lesson that we can all learn about God and how he works. This morning, I'm going to look at a couple of disciples, not any of the 11 disciples, but other disciples or followers of Jesus. The title of the message is Hopeless on the Road to Emmaus. And we're going to look at these two guys. And I want you, if you can, and I know we've heard these stories so many times, but try to imagine what it must have been like for the disciples. Not just the 11, but also the ladies, the women that had been traveling with Jesus, ministering with Jesus, supporting the ministry of Jesus, and the many other followers that had become part of this group. They had joined with Jesus, and they had seen from the, 
from the miracle of the water, water into wine at a wedding in Cana. They had seen him cast demons out of demon-possessed people. They had seen him walk up and hug a leper and cure this leper of leprosy. They had seen him lay hands on dead people, and they came back to life. They had seen and experienced all this. They saw him take a few fish and a couple loaves of bread and turn it into enough food for thousands of people. Amazing stuff. And then, just a week earlier, they were there when Jesus came walking into Jerusalem. Only he wasn't walking. He was riding that little donkey. We call it Palm Sunday. When the people are going crazy, he's getting this reception. And and you can imagine, they must have felt like, finally, the recognition he deserves. He's the Messiah. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. We're going to see Israel redeemed. We're going to see the hand of Rome removed. And we are going to be the people. The Jewish people will rule and reign themselves. Oh, man, it was exciting. You can imagine how high their hopes were. All of the things that they walked away from, all the things they'd sacrificed, all the things they've seen, and then just a few days, all the evil of earth and hell was loosed on Jesus. And their hope was totally deflated by the nails that were put in the hands and feet of Jesus. How must they have felt? What must they have been thinking? What would they have been talking about? You can only imagine. How did we miss this? We thought he was the real deal. We left our homes. We left everything. Were the miracles we saw somehow phony? How do you fake feeding 5,000 people? Who knows? But all we know is their hope was gone. Disappointment. Despair. Sadness. All of their hope ended at the cross. So it seemed. Jesus was going to reveal himself when the hope had disappeared. So we're going to follow these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what I want us to look at is to see the hope that had been lost, the hope returning, and the hope really manifested and fulfilled. So we're going to be reading uh, from Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, a lot of this will be on the screen. But Luke chapter 24. Setting the stage where we're going to start in verse 13, the first two verses, the first 12 verses of that is when they got up early in the morning, what we call Easter morning, and the ladies went to the tomb. They had planned because they had to bury Jesus so suddenly on on the Sabbath, before the Sabbath started, they were going to do the best thing they could do as far as embalming in that day. And on the way, they're walking. It's just so amazing. These women are amazing women. What about the rock, the stone? How are we going to move that? Oh, shoot, we never thought about that. We might as well go home. No, they just kept going. And they got there, and the tomb was empty. And they went back and told the other disciples. And not just the 11, because as we're going to read this, we're going to see that these two men on the road to Emmaus were there. They were there when the women returned. They were there when Peter and John ran to the tomb and came back and said the same thing. It's empty. 
They were there. But now they're walking home on the road to Emmaus. And what I want us to notice, first of all, these two people. How many of you know how famous these two people were? Well, it'd be divine revelation because they're never mentioned in the Bible before this moment, and they're never mentioned again after this moment. We get the name of one, Cleopas, and then what's his name? Two evidently, as far as we can tell, totally unimportant people. Totally insignificant. Nobody that we would have said would have been worthy of the Christ, Jesus, revealing himself to these two people. I think something we can learn from that for each one of us is, in our economy, in our culture, we could easily buy the lie that you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not important enough, and you're bad. You sinned. We're disqualified. We need to understand in God's economy, every single one of us are important. Every single one of us are significant. He cares about every single one of us. Here are these two guys, Cleopas and somebody, walking home. They had been with the disciples. They knew the tomb was empty, and they're walking on the road. And these are the two people that God through Jesus, decides to go reveal himself to. Amazing. Let's read in, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, the same day, what day? Resurrection Sunday. They'd been there with the other disciples when the women had left and came back. And they'd been there when Peter and John ran and came back. And now they said, well, what's the use? We might as well go home. So that very same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed the things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast or sad. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus said, what things? How ironic is that? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hope. We had hoped that he was the one, the Messiah. He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found out it just as a woman had said, but him they did not see. Nobody believed. Couldn't question whether the tomb was empty. They'd heard all of that information, and yet they're walking home, sad and dismayed, trying to understand what had happened, trying to understand. And then here comes Jesus. They don't recognize him as Jesus. But he comes to them. And 
I believe we're seeing him beginning to restore their hope. How many of us have not had hope in our lives totally deflated by circumstances? It might be something as simple as, gee, we were planning this vacation. We were all excited. We hoped to go do this. We hoped to see this. And something comes up and you can't go. Hope. Deflated. Maybe much more serious than that. It could be somebody who's been hoping for a child for years and years and years and they get pregnant. And they're so excited and they're so filled with hope of this life and they miscarry. Or sickness and disease. It seems to be gone and we're filled with hope and it returns. Our hope can be so impacted by the circumstances in our life. And that's what had happened to these disciples. Man, their hopes, especially, I can only imagine what their hopes must have seemed like when they were coming into Jerusalem. Jesus riding that donkey and the crowds are going crazy. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Their king was finally arriving. And then there's the cross, the crucifixion, the nails. Their hope destroyed. And when Jesus goes to them, it's interesting what he says to them. What are you guys talking about? Why are you so sad? Now think about that for a minute. Who's asking these questions? This is Jesus. God in the flesh. God the Son. He knows exactly what they're talking about, and he knows exactly why they're so sad. Matter of fact, he lived through it, right? Why is he asking them? He wants it to pull it out of them. He wants it to come forth from them. He wants that all those things that are causing their hope to be destroyed to be brought to the light, and then he is going to shine the light of truth on it. I think that's another thing we can learn, church. God knows everything about you and me, and he knows exactly what you're going through. He knows what we're experiencing. He knows what we're struggling with. But he wants us to come to him. Come to him in prayer. Talk to him. Share with him. Explain to him. And then let him speak and bring light. These are two guys that we never hear from again. And Jesus went to them on the road to Emmaus. He'll meet with you. He'll meet with me. He wants to meet with us. So they finally, when Jesus asks the question, he goes into the explanation. Cleopas. He starts to answer him. But there's one phrase, I think it is the key phrase in what his explanation is. He says, we had hoped. Verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. All our hope was in Him. We just knew. We've seen it. We knew what He can do. And then, their hope was totally deflated by the nails in His hands and feet, His death on a cross, buried in a tomb. Their hope was destroyed. No wonder they were discouraged. It's no wonder they were disappointed. It's no wonder they were filled with despair and they were sad. No wonder they didn't really know what to do or where to turn. Hope. Hope for a human being is an amazing thing. I really personally believe as I look at this, true hope is essential 
to have a meaningful life. Think about when something's being anticipated and you're certain, filled with hope that it's going to happen. Man, it's so fun. It's so exciting. You know, people talk about going on a trip. Half the time, the preparation and the anticipation is the most fun. And then something happens. Our hope is deflated. We need hope. And I believe the world is looking for, they may not call it this, we may not even think of it as this, but I believe the world is looking for a hope that the circumstances of life cannot ruin, cannot destroy. Something that is a hope that is eternal and can withstand anything that the world or the enemy will throw at us. And that hope is Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only one. He is the only hope that we can have, and it's available to all. It's available to all. But not all receive it. Not all accept it. It appeared to them that their dreams had been shattered. Let's get back to the disciples on the road. We see that they didn't realize that their hope had actually been fulfilled. What were they hoping for? They were hoping that Jesus was the Messiah. They were hoping that the Messiah was going to come and redeem Israel. But they didn't understand what had happened. Not only had the Messiah came and redeemed Israel, he redeemed the entire world. He redeemed the world, but they didn't understand. They didn't get it. They didn't know. So Jesus hears what they're saying, and then he begins the process, starting in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you guys are. Now, if you study that word foolish, it's not like he's slapping in the face and saying, you idiots. It's more like, how little you understand. And then I want you to pay attention to what he says next. How slow of heart you are to believe. Not here. He went beyond the brain. He went beyond the information, beyond all of that. He says, how slow of heart you are to believe. It has to go beyond knowledge. It has to change us internally, impact our heart. He says to them, now let me continue reading. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going to go on further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. That word, that phrase, urged him strongly. A better word there is they constrained him. Come and abide with us. That word constrained almost implies or could imply as part of the meaning almost a physical no Jesus grabbing him no please you got to stay it can be almost physical or at the very least a very strong entreaty please don't go come why why were they so come and abide with us stay with us come in and we're going to see when we get in a little further in the scriptures we'll see what was going on in their hearts because eventually they're going to say 
Could you feel the warmth, the burning in our hearts as he was speaking to us? Something was happening. What caused it to happen? Let's see. As they approached the village, they strongly exhorted, constrained, encouraged him, stay with us. And he reads the scriptures. He opens the truth of the word of God. The only authority. This is Jesus. He didn't start bragging about who he was, what he'd done, or what had happened in the last three days. He didn't start telling them about, yeah, he was on that cross. That was me. They buried me in that tomb, but here I am. He didn't go there. He went to the scriptures. He went to the truth. And as he's going to the scriptures, as they're walking down the road, something's burning inside of him. Something's stirring. We need to learn from that. I mean, we, we love to share our faith, and our testimony is powerful, but the word of God changes hearts. Jesus went to the word, helping them to understand. And you can almost imagine as they're hearing this from Jesus, they got to be saying, how did I miss that? How did we miss it? It's all right here. We had to memorize this stuff when we were little kids. We had to memorize this. How did we miss it? I think I could tell you at least some reasons why they could have missed it, and it's still a reason why people today still can miss this. Traditions. False teaching. Bad assumptions. They relied on their religious leaders to tell them what the law said and tell them what the law meant, and they were wrong. They missed it. Bad teaching. Poor revelation. And if you know the story of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there was an aspect of power and control that they wanted to maintain. And by the way they interpreted the law, they could do that. Now, I would never, well, I would too. Churches today are doing similar things. And too many of us, too many people, too many Christians are relying on the experts, whoever they are, some guy on TV, some guy in a seminary, some guy who's got all these degrees, or some guy like me who stands up here, and and you might think I have some of the answers. You have the Word of God. You have the Holy Spirit. You need to be in the Word. You need to be studying the Word. The Word will be brought to light by the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And if you're not saved, you don't have the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit will woo you by the Word. God will give you revelation by His grace. But we need to know the Word. We need to be in the Word. And we need not not say what the latest hot pastor, preacher, evangelist, prophet, whatever they're saying. Study the Word. Maybe they're speaking out of traditions. You know, there are many churches that would never have been this way 20, 30 years ago. They are teaching and, and, and twisting the Bible to be more culturally relevant, more culturally tolerant, supposedly under the guise of love. There are many ways to God. We all serve the same God. There are many roads that lead to Him. Not according to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father but me. No one. And all this other stuff we're hearing, well, I did this, I did this, as long as I keep doing that, I hope I did this well enough. I'm, you know, I'm trying, I'm good. Bless your heart. The truth is, unless we know the truth, 
powerless. But once we know the truth, it can change everything. So Jesus shares from the Scriptures. When what they thought was supposed to happen didn't happen, they lost hope completely. No hope to spare. They constrained him. Why? They wanted to know more. They wanted to know more. I believe, personally, can't support it directly with the Scriptures, but I believe this is at least one of the reasons Jesus went to them. They knew He knew there was a hunger. He knew there was a hunger and thirst. That hunger and thirst that God looks for. We read in the New Testament, He stands at the door. In Revelation it says, He stands at the door and knocks. We open it up. He'll come in and abide with us. I believe he saw that in these two guys. Why these two guys? It's amazing to me still that he picked these two guys walking down this road to go and reveal himself this way. Two people we never heard, we'll never hear of of them again. This is it. But they were worth Jesus' attention. So are you and so am I. And notice Jesus didn't force himself on them. He just shared the word. And let the Word and the Holy Spirit do the job of changing their hearts. And they discover hope. Starting in verse 30. When Jesus, He, was at the table with them, He took the bread and gave thanks, broke it, and began to give to give it to them. You might miss this, but that's weird. In that culture, that would never happen. No guest is going to go into somebody else's house at their invitation and recline at the table and take the bread and bless it and start handing it out. That would be an insult to the host and hostess. This would not happen. So right away, something's weird here. Who is this guy? It goes on, Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road? and open the Scriptures to us. That's what caused their hearts to burn. And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Immediate response, go share the good news. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and He has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized them by them when He broke the bread. We don't know. It doesn't tell us what happened, why they recognized Him. You know, my mind goes right to communion, but they probably they weren't at the Last Supper. Maybe it was just because it was weird and it triggered something. Maybe when he broke the bread and handed it to him, they saw holes in his hands and his wrists. We don't know. Maybe it was just one of those things where God had hid his identity until that moment and raised, removed the scales. We don't know. But we know, do know, immediately he vanished. Doesn't that seem weird? You went to all this work. Now they finally understand who you are and you'll leave. Where'd he go? Were we having a dream? 